You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. If you would please join with me in turning to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, Matthew chapter 12. If you're visiting with us for the first time, we are making our way through the Gospel of Matthew on these Lord's days, and we have come to the 12th chapter, and this morning we will be looking at verses 31 and 32. Our Lord said this, Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Go to our God together in prayer and ask His blessing on the preaching of His Word. Our Father in heaven, we thank You for the reality of forgiveness. There is what we celebrate, the full, free forgiveness of all of our sins. We could not survive apart from it. We would be damned without Your grace and mercy to us and Your Son. And we know a joy and an acceptance and a freedom in that forgiveness that is more wonderful than we have the capacity to give expression to. Well, this is why for us worship is both a joy and in some ways a struggle because we are aware of the smallness of our capacity to give expression to the greatness of what you've done. But we are grateful that you regard our worship in the same grace that explains us as worshipers. You've made us worshipers, and now, Lord, you receive our worship with all of its imperfections, with all of its weakness in a gracious way, knowing the desires of our hearts, desires that you have put there to please you and to praise you for who you are and what you've done. Today, Lord, as I declare your word, I need your help. Apart from Christ, my efforts will be impotent. But I'm grateful for the sufficiency that is found in your word and by the working of your spirit. And so, Lord, we are confident that your spirit is at work this morning. We ask you to deal with our hearts and lives in a way that produces what will Pass the test of eternity. May you save today, Lord. Surely someone who will be hearing me this day is in need of salvation in your Son, not yet regenerated, not yet justified. Lord, would you save today? And then for your church, we gather as your church, would you take this time of preaching and use it for the upbuilding and the well-being of your children? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you ask any faithful preacher, if you survey any faithful body of elders, and you were to ask them to make a list of the most common questions asked regarding texts of Scripture, the subject matter that we come to today would certainly be on that list. How often in 39 years of ministry have I been asked, what is the unpardonable sin. 
What does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? What is the unforgivable blasphemy that Jesus is talking about? Maybe you've had that question. What is the unforgivable sin? And what makes that question especially weighty is that it's often being asked by people who are afraid they have committed it. You meet with people who are troubled. You meet with people who are afraid. Sometimes despondent. Sometimes convinced that they have committed sin that now places them beyond salvation. It's a good reminder that when we come to this text, these two verses, and any text in the Word of God, we're not dealing with mere curiosities. Theology is not for entertainment. We're talking about real people's lives. We're talking about souls as our Lord's words make plain. We're talking about eternity. Our Lord says in verse 32, it shall be forgiven him. That is, if you speak a word against the Son of Man. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. It will never be forgiven. And our Lord never issued strong warnings about things that aren't real. I mean, when He's warning, you have a real danger being warned about. So this is something we need to be awake to this morning. This is something we'd better be awake and alert to and have our minds ready for action. Some very important questions we're going to grapple with. What is the blasphemy against the Spirit of God? What is the sin that will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come? Can someone who desires to be saved lose their opportunity to be saved by committing it? There's someone hearing me today that you want to be saved, but now you cannot be saved because you have already committed this sin. How would you know if you've committed it? Can this sin be committed casually? Is it possible you've committed this sin and you don't even know it, and then you discover it, and now it's too late? We'll grapple with these and some others as we walk through these verses. We'll get these two verses under three headings. I'll just mention them as we come to them. First of all, the most obvious issue we have to deal with is this, what this blasphemy is. That's where I want to begin. What this blasphemy is. We want to understand it. We want to state it. We want to be clear about it. What this blasphemy is. And I think when you look at this text and you look at the other texts that deal with this sin, it becomes plain. It becomes clear what this sin is. I know that this has been wrestled over for as long as our Lord spoke these words, but nonetheless, the Bible gives us clarity on this. First of all, it's the sin of speech. That ought to be clear, right? It's blasphemy. And blasphemy involves words. Blasphemia is the word. Speech that denigrates or defames, reviling, denigration, disrespect, slander. It speaks of defamatory speech, abusive speech. You can blaspheme God. You can blaspheme men. You can blaspheme the devil. Whoever it is you're speaking against with abusive, defamatory words, that is blasphemy. Here we have the Pharisees speaking against Jesus as He's casting out demons, and they accuse Him 
of doing what he's doing by the power of Satan, being in league with the devil. And this, this causes our Lord to warn them. Verse 32, whoever speaks a word, blasphemy again, a sin of speech. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him. So these are words. But you've got to be clear about something. Words are not considered blasphemy in some sort of magical way. You know, the, 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 the vocal means that God has given us to communicate form sound and the lips form shape and words come out of your mouth and there it is, it's magic and you can't reclaim them. They left your mouth and so now you've committed blasphemy that can't be forgiven. Now that's not what is envisioned here. The words are blasphemous because your beliefs are blasphemous. This is not just a sin of speech. This is speech that evidences blasphemous evil in the heart. That's why the words matter. That's why the words are dangerous. Because what they're giving voice to is what is going on in your heart. And in your heart you have beliefs that are blasphemous. There's an attitude that is blasphemous. Mark 3, 28-30 says, Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Next phrase. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So it does have to do with their speech. What I'm saying is the speech has to do with what's going on in the heart. And in fact, the verses we'll deal with tonight make that very clear, don't they? Look at verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. The issue here is words, but the words matter because of the condition of the heart. So, speech that evidences blasphemous evil in the heart. That's what this sin is. We can describe it another way. It is speech that evidences a unique kind of evil in the heart. This particular sin evidences a unique kind of evil in the heart. Because our Lord makes clear that blasphemy is forgivable. Verse 31, Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy, any kind of blasphemy, shall be forgiven people. Any kind of sin you can envision, any kind of sin the Word of God identifies, any kind of blasphemy you can envision is forgivable, but not this one. Not this one. This is a unique blasphemy because it evidences a unique kind of evil in the heart. In fact, the Apostle Paul describes himself as one who was saved after blaspheming. The Son of God, 1 Timothy 1.13, Though I was formerly a blasphemer, 
persecutor and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Paul was a blasphemer, but he was forgiven. And this is why, and this may seem strange to us at first blush, but this is why you can blaspheme Jesus and be forgiven later on. That's what our Lord says in verse 32. Whoever speaks a word against the, the Son of Man, that's the Messiah, that's the Christ, that's Jesus. It is possible to have blasphemed Jesus and to be forgiven of that sin. This is what Paul had done. So whatever this sin is, it belongs to a different category. Not just words that express an evil that exists in the heart, but words that express a unique kind of evil that is existing in the heart. Because it belongs to a different category. If you ask what makes this different, there's a third way we can describe it. It is speech that evidences an evil that knowingly rejects light. Knowingly rejects light. Did you hear what Paul said about his blasphemy? He said, though I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. He knew who Jesus of Nazareth was. He had heard about him. He had heard about his life and his deeds, but he didn't believe that he was the Messiah, which is why he blasphemed him. And he found forgiveness for that. The Lord opened his eyes. He met Jesus on the road to Damascus, met the very one he denied. And the Lord had mercy upon Saul of Tarsus and forgave him and transformed his life. But what we're seeing in this context in Matthew 12 is different than that. These are men, these men being warned. Have they already committed this sin? Some would say, yes, I, I don't know the text says that. They're being warned about this sin. What characterizes the way they're behaving? Well, they're not just rejecting Christ's message. They are rejecting confirming signs that were performed in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is why it's blasphemy of the Spirit. Because they're taking what has been produced by the power of the Spirit and they are attributing that to Satan. They're calling light darkness. And not just any kind of light, the clearest kind of light, unmistakable light, undeniable light, and not just any kind of darkness. They're saying this is from Satan. And so here they are taking, I'm going to set this down here, I keep wanting to knock it over. Here they are taking the Son of God, the embodiment of truth, and saying He is the most powerful servant of Satan the world has ever seen. And their own past behavior makes clear that not only are they being hypocrites, they are knowing hypocrites. They, they know the inconsistency they are engaging in. Remember what the Lord said to them back in verse 26. He says, and if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. Your disciples, that's what he means by your sons, 
your students, you have people who follow your teaching and they are involved in exorcism ministry. And you can be sure of this, they were not casting out demons with any kind of power that was on display like was on display in Jesus. Their deeds do not match. And yet not one time do these men accuse their sons of casting out demons by the power of Satan. Why would you see your sons engaged in exorcism ministry and not attribute that to the power of Satan, not say they're in league with Satan, but now Jesus is delivering people from demons in a way that is undeniable. The fact that you take what he does and try to attribute it to Satan means you cannot deny what he's doing. You acknowledge it's real. You just try to explain it by a different source than God. So, so the very fact you're doing this admits you know it's real. Why do you accuse him of being in league with Satan, but not your sons? Of course, the answer is because Jesus exposes them. Because Jesus exposes the empty, dead religion that characterizes them. If Jesus is the truth, if He's telling the truth, if His deeds represent the truth, the power of God, then these men are in need of conversion. So they don't accuse Jesus because they don't know the true source of His deeds. They accuse Jesus, listen, because they don't care about the true source of His deeds. They know, they should know, that these deeds are done by the power of God, by the power of the Spirit, but they won't admit that. They don't care that that's true because they want to hold their ground. They want to hold on to the facade that they are men of God. A couple of things expose the fact they knew the truth. One, someone of their own number, Nicodemus, by the grace of God, the common grace of God, he, he had enough honesty to admit he knew that Jesus represented God. At the time that he had this conversation with Jesus in John 3, he's not yet clear about who Jesus is, but he knows he can't do what he's doing except God be with him. John 3, 2, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. There's an honest man. I don't know who you are, but I know this, you're from God. Because no one can do what you're doing if, if he's not from God. But the Pharisees themselves said things that made clear they had light. I mean, they should have, if there was honesty and the softness of heart necessary for this to happen, they would have had to admit the truth about Jesus. John eleven forty seven. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, this is after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. They gather a council and they say, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Listen, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. What he's doing demands belief. If he keeps doing this, everyone is going to believe in Him. So why aren't you believing in Him? Well, listen to the next thing they say. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. We don't care that what He's doing demands belief. We care about our place. 
We care about the life that we know. We care about the influence that we have. We care about earthly reputation, earthly influence. And so here are men, not only do you have words that give voice to blasphemous evil in the heart, it is a unique kind of evil in the heart. And if you ask what makes it unique, the answer is it is evil that exists not with ignorance, but with light. You know the truth. You've seen the truth. It is undeniable. And you take what you know to be true and you call it darkness. So that you're not just, you're not just a liar. You're a knowing liar. You know what you're doing. John MacArthur, Richard Mayhew, in the systematic theology called Biblical Doctrine, they say this, though the Pharisees had received the clearest revelation of Jesus' authority, and their, their hearts were so hardened that they refused to accept what they knew to be true and levied a slanderous charge and a malicious attempt to silence him. As a result, Jesus declared them to be past the point of repentance and forgiveness. It is this hardened, determined, willful rejection and unbelief, even in the face of the most undeniable evidence that characterizes the unpardonable sin. In sum, one commits the unforgivable sin by witnessing the acts of the Spirit of God in Jesus and because of a hard heart of unbelief attributing those acts to Satan. Close quote. And I agree with that. Here are men who are seeing these acts of God that are undeniable. They are signs. In fact, in John eleven forty seven, 47, they say, for this man performs many signs. I mean, just their language betrays them. He performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone's going to believe in him. So they recognize there are signs being performed. The signs demand belief, but they refuse to believe. And, astoundingly, take that light and call it darkness to the most extreme level possible, making the Son of God out to be the greatest son of Satan that the world has ever seen. Which leads to a fourth thing we can say about this sin. What is it? It is speech that evidences an evil that is settled. For it to be unforgivable means that it is a sin you will never repent of. You are settled in this sin. And I think this has to do with the evidence. More evidence cannot be given to you. What you've been given is sufficient. The power that explains what Jesus is doing can't be clearer than it is. If this will not convince you, there's nothing more to convince you. Whatever else would be given to you is of the same nature. It would just be additional evidence of the same nature so that you've reached your dead end. When the evidence has been exhausted, as it were, and you still not only are unconvinced, but you actually take that evidence and make it darkness, there's no hope for you. There's no hope. There's nothing that will change your mind. 
It is settled evil. An example of this is in John chapter 10, the 24th verse. It says, So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, This is amazing. How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you. And you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. He just told them, didn't He? You're the Christ. Tell us plainly. I've told you. The works have told you. You have every bit of evidence you need to know who I am. But let me tell you again who I am. I'm one with the Father. I'm God in human flesh. That's what one with the Father means. I'm your creator face to face through an incarnation. I'm the Son of God on the earth. I'm Emmanuel, God with us. That's who I am. How do they respond to that? Next statement. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Tell us who you are. He tells them, let's kill him. What is this? This is settled evil. It doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter what is demonstrated. It doesn't matter what you see. You have made your mind up. And there's no more evidence that can be given to you. What this sin is, then, is judgment on a hardened heart. So that the sinner is given over to his or her own willful darkness to the degree that light is called darkness and darkness is called light. There is now moral insanity. I'll talk more about this in just a moment, but let me just say to you, it is a, a sobering thing to be given the truth. What will you do with it? Do you understand the danger of taking light that you know is light and turning it off? Arguing against it? Trying to convince yourself and others that what is the light is actually the darkness? Do you understand the danger in that? Christ is warning here. Because God might just give you over to what you want. That is, now you'll be convinced that your darkness is light and the light is darkness. You'll really believe it. You'll be very confident about it. You'll be settled in it. But don't forget the last thing, last while I'll describe this. It is speech that manifests an evil that is damned. When someone reaches this point, their eternal destiny is fixed. They will not turn around. They will not be rescued. They will not repent. They are, they are spiritually like Judas. They might even come to the place where they'll admit the innocence of Jesus, but they won't bow the knee to Jesus. Judas knew he had betrayed innocent blood but Judas didn't look to Jesus as the Son of God and the Savior of his soul. Judas knew a kind of sorrow where he would go out and hang himself, but he didn't know a kind of sorrow, godly sorrow, that would look to Jesus for mercy. Someone who has this kind of evil in their heart, they never turn from it. 
I think about Hebrews 12, 15. It says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent. Maybe a better way to understand it is no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. Esau knew a selfish sorrow, but he never found genuine repentance. So what is this blasphemy? It is speech, but it's not magic words. Speech that evidences a blasphemous evil in the heart. Speech that evidences a unique kind of evil in the heart. This is the kind that is not forgiven. What makes it unique is that it knowingly rejects light. It, it is clear and turns off the light that it knows to be light so that it becomes settled in darkness. And the result is it will be damned. There is no forgiveness for it in this age nor in the age to come. But now there's a second point I want to make. I want us to think about what this blasphemy is not. Having described what it is, let's think about what it's not. And the reason I want to do this is what I talked about earlier many times. I would even say in my case, most of the time I've heard this question, it is coming from someone who's afraid they've committed the sin. And so loving people, caring about souls, understanding what the devil will do with Scripture, we need to be clear about what this blasphemy is not. I want to remind you that Scripture is perfectly consistent with itself, always. So this sin cannot, will not nullify the promises of the gospel. Our Lord said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. If you are weary in your sin, if you desire relief in the form of forgiveness, reconciliation with God, and you look to Christ for that reconciliation, you will find rest for your soul. He will not turn you away. Acts 16.31 says, And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. Acts 2.21, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. These verses are always true. Come to Jesus with your weary heart and you'll find rest. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Anyone, everyone who does this will find forgiveness and life. I bring this up because, as I said, most people who are troubled by this warning are people who now want Jesus. They say, I want the Son of God. I want the forgiveness of my sins. I want to know the Lord, but, but I'm afraid I've committed this sin and now I can't find my way to Him. And I want to say to you that if you want the Lord Jesus, if you're willing to turn from your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, He will not turn you away, which means you have not committed this sin. 
Let me describe it this way. This is not blasphemy that now grieves you. If you've committed this blasphemy, it does not grieve you. I'm talking about godly grief. As I said, you may know some kind of selfish sorrow, but you won't know godly grief. Grief that looks Godward. Grief that desires forgiveness. Grief that desires reconciliation with God. Grief that desires salvation. That grief is not found in people who've committed this sin. Just look at the men who are in danger of committing it in our verses, the Pharisees. They don't go on to grieve over what they're saying about Jesus. In fact, they go from bad to worse. They go from accusers to assistant executioners. They mock Him as He hangs upon the cross. These are not grieving men. So if you think about blasphemies that you have uttered or thought, some people worry about what's going on just in their heart. I've had these thoughts, these thoughts that I know are blasphemous against God. Have I committed a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Now listen, if that grieves you, these thoughts you've had, these words you've spoken, maybe even these deeds you've committed, if this grieves you and you desire the forgiveness that's found in Jesus Christ, you have not committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Because this, this is a grief that is absent in the people who've committed the sin. I'll say it to you another way. It is not blasphemy that now terrorizes you. Not only do these men not go on to grieve, they don't tremble. They don't tremble as they speak these words to Jesus about Jesus and they grow worse. Go ahead and follow the, with me throughout the rest of the Gospel of Matthew and what we're going to see is that these men become more and more bold in the ways that they deal with the Son of God. More brazen, more confident, more aggressive, more combative, more hateful. They're going to bring Him into these mock trials where they actually try to hire witnesses to tell lies about Him. They're going to beat Him. They're going to spit upon Him. When Pilate's ready to release Him, they're going to lead the crowds to say, no, we would rather have a murdering thief released than this man. There's no, there's no sorrow. There's no fear. And so when someone comes to us and they're frightened, that they've committed this sin. Why? Because I want Christ. Because I want the forgiveness of my sins. Because I want to be reconciled to God. You've not committed this sin. People who commit this sin, they don't tremble at what they've done. I can describe it negatively in one more way. It is not blasphemy that you're willing to turn from. It is not a blasphemy that you're... If you commit this sin, it is not a blasphemy that you're willing to turn from. People who commit the, this sin, why is it forever? Why is it never forgiven in this age or in the age to come? Because it's never repented of. It's never grieved over in a godly way. It's never trembled over in a godly way that, that fears God and reverences the true God. It is not repented of. It's not turned from. Ever. Which is why it's, it's, it's in complete agreement in accordance with the promises of the gospel. If you come to Christ, you'll find forgiveness. If you cry out to Christ, you'll find forgiveness. Why do these people never find forgiveness? Because they don't cry out to Christ. 
They don't grieve. They don't fear. They don't repent. They don't turn from this sin. Now this, this is a sin where God takes people who knew the light and call it darkness and He gives them over to their darkness to the degree that they lose their moral senses. And light and darkness are inverted. And they aren't afraid of what they're doing and they're not grieved by what they're doing and they will never turn from what they're doing. I'll be honest with you, as I've grappled with this particular subject over many years, there's a part of me that wonders if this sin can even be committed today. And here's why I say that, because you have unique I mean, never before seen circumstances in the history of the world. You have the Son of God on the earth. And you have Him performing these signs. And you have these men face to face with things no one has ever seen before or since. And then they're calling the Son of God the Son of Satan. I mean, is this even repeatable? But the one reason that, that gives me pause to just saying I don't think it's able to be committed today is the fact that we find very similar warnings throughout the rest of the New Testament that is beyond the cross, beyond the resurrection, beyond the ascension, you still find these very serious warnings about meeting with light, walking away from light, and then being confirmed in everlasting darkness. For example, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, and holding Him up to contempt. And I believe that everything that Hebrews 6 describes in the first part of verse 4 and verse 5, I believe those things fall short of conversion and experience with truth and light and the Spirit of God that fall short of conversion. Then they apostatize. They walk away. They actually stand in the place of those who crucified the Son of God. They're in the same condition. They met with light and they turned the light off. Hebrews 10.29 says, How much severer punishment do you think He will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which He was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? You've met with the gospel truth. You've met with the truth of the shed blood of the Son of God. You have claimed that you belong to that covenant ratified by His blood, but then you walk away from the gospel in a final sense. There's no way home from that. 1 John 5 indicates there's a sin that leads to death. Verse 16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask God and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. 2 Peter 2.21 says, for it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment delivered to them. So here's, here's my third point. What the blasphemy is, what the blasphemy is not, 
It's not a blasphemy that you'll, you'll grieve over. It's not a blasphemy that you'll, you'll fear over. It's not a blasphemy that you'll repent of. Third point, where this warning will rescue. Where this warning will rescue. So you've got to ask a question. Why is Jesus even giving this warning? Why is Jesus warning these men? If the sin that is committed is unforgivable, if those committing it are hardened beyond godly grief, godly fear, true repentance, then why warn anyone? And why these warnings passages throughout the New Testament, Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10, 1 John 5, etc. Why these warnings passages? The reason why the warnings are issued is because they will prove to be effective in the lives of the elect. The sheep will hear the shepherd's voice. Don't keep us in suspense. Tell us, are you the Christ? I've told you. You don't believe. Do you know why you don't believe? Because you're not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. They follow the shepherd. And listen, when the shepherd warns you about turning off the light, when the shepherd warns you about turning away from the truth concerning himself, if you are among the elect of God, you hear that warning and you heed it. And the Lord actually uses the warning to rescue you. You say, I don't want to be that person. I don't want to be that person who would call light darkness and darkness light. I don't want to be that person who comes face to face with the truth of the Son of God, have even said with my mouth that I believe and then walk away from Him forever and be lost forever. I don't want to be that person. I am grieved by how I've responded to the truth in the past. I am afraid that if I go on like this, I'll be lost forever. I am willing to repent and turn from my sins, to turn to the Son of God who will have mercy on blasphemers like Paul and like me. Turn to Christ. He'll save you. Run to Christ. He'll forgive you. He has mercy upon every kind of sin the world has ever seen. He has mercy upon every kind of blasphemy that's ever been uttered. Run to Him and He'll forgive you of it all. And remember none of it. Drop it in the sea of forgetfulness and never remember it again. You'll be treated for the rest of time and eternity for what God will have made you, His own child. And all of it explained by grace and mercy. None of it you will have deserved, but all of it was purchased by the blood of the great shepherd of the sheep who laid down his life to save you. Believe the gospel and you'll be saved. I'm grieved over past blasphemies I've uttered. Then turn to Christ. I'm afraid that I might have committed the unforgivable sin. Well, then turn to Christ. I wish I hadn't done what I did. Then turn to Christ. And you'll find a merciful shepherd who rescues people by warning them. So here's what I ask you as we finish. Do you hear the warning? Does it sound like a warning to you? Is it serious to you? Jesus is warning men who come face to face with light, but it 
it would expose them. It would call for their repentance. It would require their surrender. And so instead of surrendering, they're willing to slander the merciful one who would forgive them of their sins. Do you see the seriousness of that? Will you heed the warning? Anybody hearing me today, you've come face to face with gospel truth how many times in your life, but have you surrendered your life to Jesus? Have you agreed with God's gospel about who you are? Have you said from your heart and with your lips, I am a sinner through and through. And if God gives me what I deserve, I will perish forever. I am lost. I am undone. I am unsavable by any human power. If Jesus will not have me, I will perish forever. Son of God, forgive this life. Rescue this soul. Save me forever. Have you heeded the warning? Or have you said to yourself, you know, I'll deal with that when I can get around to it. Maybe one day. Can I tell you, if you are grieved over your sin, if you are afraid of being lost forever, if there is in your heart a willingness to turn from your way of sin and trust in Christ for salvation, you may not be in the same frame of mind tomorrow. It is a grace from God that that is your mindset right now. And that's the warning, you see. That's the danger. It's as if you think people can repent on their own. As if genuine repentance and genuine faith are not gifts from God. They are. Penitent faith is a gift from God. Which is why one of the warnings you find in the New Testament is this. If today you hear His voice, don't harden your heart like that generation did in the Old Testament that wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years and perished. If today you hear His voice, don't harden your heart. If today, if today you hear His voice, understand today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to turn from your sin. Today is the day to embrace the Son of God. Today is the day to repent. Today is the day to believe. And if you trust in Christ this day, here's what you will discover. You heeded the shepherd's warning because the shepherd loved you before you were ever born. And in the case of God's elect, the warnings matter. Do you believe God's testimony regarding His Son? If you do, would you say amen? Do you believe it though it exposes you? Because it does expose us. Do you believe it though it requires your repentance and your faith? Because it requires that. It demands it. Do you believe it though it demands your surrender? Because no one has ever known Jesus as Savior who hasn't bowed the knee to Him as Lord. Will you lose your life to know life in Him? And if you do, you can be sure that you are not a blasphemer who is beyond forgiveness. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, thank You that Your Word is always consistent with itself. doesn't contradict itself. It doesn't give us mixed signals and set us off on conflicting paths. The promises of the Gospel are true to everyone hearing them this day. If anyone is weary and heavy laden, they've been laboring to save themselves and they know that they are lost. 
If anyone is willing to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, if anyone will cry out and call upon the name of the Lord, Lord, you are so gracious and so faithful to save. And so may every soul that's in need of Christ this day who hears my voice do that very thing. May they turn from their sins to trust in your Son. And may every child of God in this place understand the mercy we've been shown. For if you had not softened our heart, granted us a heart of flesh, if you had not granted grace in our inner man, we would have gone on in stubborn unbelief to our death, to everlasting damnation. You shined your, heart, your light into our hearts. You gave us the knowledge of your glory in the face of your Son. You granted us penitent faith. And so may anyone who, who has been saved and has struggled with the fear that they've committed this sin, may they be set free today to recognize what is true of it, what isn't true of it, and realize that their very concern about it is evidence they've not committed it. May we all pursue Christ hard with all of our hearts and all of our lives. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.